poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into The Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy, with you until the end of the hour. Today on The Bohemian Beat, we are delving deep into those arenas most are afraid to tread, but not here in the heart of Bohemia, where the ghosts of poets create spaces in the theatre of our minds to examine the deeper paradoxes of human behaviour. The eternal struggle between good and evil, the strange destructive directions we are herded toward, the voluntary residence inside mental prisons, the tension behind many literary masterpieces, the concept of evil, and who are the soulless ones native wisdom warns us about. To help us interpret this immense subject, I will be featuring a recent interview with the Irish writer and artist Thomas Sheridan. But first, let's start with some music. Control freaks. I just don't like them. You know who you are. You're an evil control freak. I don't like you because you want to control me. You're an evil control freak. I see that. Insecurity runs deep. Yeah. 
Napoleon holding them down Marking many orders of disorder Distorting all that's around This way or the highway And don't step out of bounds I hop on the interstate And drive out of town So many controlling freaks They keep rolling on down the street Putting people in ball and chains Use the key to take Starglider with Evil Control Freaks. Irish writer and artist Thomas Sheridan has written extensively on the subject of psychopathy and evil. Using a multidisciplined approach, he references art, literature, psychology, mythology, folklore and neuroscience to examine how the minds of psychopaths work and why. Sheridan also provides a practical focus on what you can do to survive and thrive when you come across these cheats, charlatans, liars, neglectful parents, abusive teachers, lying lovers, tyrannical bosses, colleagues from hell, and two-faced politicians and their psychopathic control grid. All of this and more is articulated in an accessible way through his books, Puzzling People, The Labyrinth of the Psychopath, Defeated Demons, Freedom from Consciousness Parasites and Psychopathic Society, and The Anvil of the Psyche. I began by asking Thomas Sheridan if he could articulate his definition of evil from a literary perspective. Well, my definition of evil, if we're taking in, in literary terms, now it's very easy to say, okay, it's someone like the Marquis de Sade, or it's someone like Dr. Frankenstein, any sort of typical monstrous character in any number of novels, both you know, classic and pulp fiction. To me, the definition of evil is the harvesting of another person's emotional and psychological and spiritual energy in a pathological, manipulative and deliberate manner say for instance in steinbeck's east of eden kathy ames would be a classic example of evil in my book on a more sort of famous level because she has she literally through the course of that novel spends her entire life literally being a monster but a monster who it uses the power of her mind her ability to manipulate in order to achieve it all the way down to someone as minor as the citizen in James Joyce's Ulysses 
where you have a character who makes anti-Semitic and demeaning, personally demeaning comments to Leopold Bloom for no other reason than he's enjoying the rush of energy he's attaining from the distress that he's causing a man who has a failed uh, marriage, is a member of a minority, has lost a son, has a wife who's sleeping around on him. And that would be evil to me. The harvesting of the energy of others, both spiritual, psychological, even financial, through manipulative and deceptive means. And that's really where it is. That's, that, that would be it for me. Do you think that James Joyce had a pretty good idea of um, the psychopath? I think he had a very mature idea of human behaviour. Now, it could have been very easy for him to portray Molly Bloom as a monster. Very, very easy. And people like Blazers Boylan, who's her lover, who's the, the theatrical promoter, who's basically having you know an open affair with her while he goes around as a you know an advertising salesman through Dublin. However, he doesn't. He portrays her in a sympathetic light in what I was a damaged person as a result of the death of their, their child, Rudy. And Bloom himself is resolved to this, that there are other kinds of love that are not, you know, exclusively rooted in fidelity and so on. And that was the great, the great magic in Joyce's work is that he was well aware of the complexities of human beings that to solely judge a person on one or two traits of their personality was as wicked in some ways as what a pathological person does exploiting another person. He was, his, his, I think one of the reasons is Ulysses shocked so many people is that he humanized uh, human behavior. I know it sounds like a strange phrase, but I mean, the, the main, re I think the reason the book was banned in the United States is because he describes a disabled girl having an, an orgasm from masturbating during a fireworks display. And I think the U S censor said something like no self-respecting woman would ever do that to herself. So he, he humanized people. He humanized people. And that, to me, is a very important aspect of what I've tried to achieve. I do, I, I'm very aware that the system itself is psychopathic, that it, it favors psychopathic individuals. But I also know that are proto-psychopathic people who may be damaged, who embark on and do wicked and mean and dark things but they're very different than a purebred psychopath who you can put under an fMRI machine. So it's looking at this sort of human concoction of these behaviours. It's not perhaps psychopathic, but because they've been damaged, it leads to for them to be exploited and to be enablers. Yeah, like the the, the proto psychopath. But the proto psychopath is often the kind of the an, an automaton of the the main psychopath. You know, you'd have a you'd have a a serial killer type situation where you'd have like the mother who might be helping and protecting the serial killer or a, a relationship like Maura Hindley and Ian Brady, the Moore's murders in England, where he was a full blown, absolute, complete, total, you know, dark psychopath that you could ever want to meet. And she was someone who'd been beaten and raped by alcoholics, parents all, during her childhood. So she was a perfect 
blank canvas of trauma from which him to build an automaton in his own image to help her to help him go about murdering these children children in Manchester in the nineteen sixties. So yes, that to me is very interesting. I mean, I don't have this. I you know, it is a black and white situation somehow that there is human beings and there is psychopaths. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And we are in extreme danger. Any psychopath who gets in a position of power, but at the same time too, we cannot create a division in the world, a kind of a modern witch hunt where one person is a psychopath and one person isn't because that kind of thinking has never served humanity well in the past before and it won't do in this issue. Because it is such a complex problem. I mean, it is really necessary to understand the mechanisms of the dysfunction of sort of normal, reasonable people and the way in which they um, maintain this control grid, this psycho-control grid that we sort of find ourselves stuck within. Yes. The problems that we're facing now, because this really has its roots set in social Darwinism or the way the psycho grid has actually utilised those ideas and put that into the economy and put that into absolutely everything where we believe that we have to compete and we have to be all these sorts of unreasonable um, things. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I've never read it, but I do know it. Well, basically... The essence of this sort of academic or philosopher who sort of um, is undercovering the sort of mechanisms of society and he goes mad basically at what he discovers and has a you know electric shock treatment and all that sort of stuff. But the essence of the book is basically the understanding of quality. So there's no concept of quality anymore within the education, within art, within all these sorts of stuff. And for the artist or the isolated intellectual or whatever you want to call those sort of more sensitive types, the world becomes a very hell-like place when quality is eroded um, in that way. I guess you could call that then the concept of beauty or, or however different philosophers would articulate that. So we have a lot of um, literature which really talks about the decline of the isolated intellectual within this sort of society but without any real roadmap or understanding of the society at large so what kind of literary aspects would would you recommend or or, or do you find an interesting way to, to look examine this topic well that's a that's actually very well stated there is the word quality you use there is very apt and i'll tell you why since well, you mentioned social Darwinism. I would also bring behaviorism, the work of Watson. The idea that everything has to be weighed and measured according to stimuli. The arts and the aesthetics don't work like that. The philosopher, the dreamer, the poet, the mystic, the shaman, the druid, they don't, they don't work like that. So therefore, they have been become unpeople, uncharacters within society. And it has been the arts that has picked this up very much so, very much so. We've also, as Joseph Campbell pointed out, our technology and this advancement through this materialistic, quantified, corporeal only view of reality has created a situation for the first time in human history whereby our technological advances have overtaken our ability to create a mythology from which to help deal with the the subconscious traumas caused by the society we live in. 
So basically, human beings right now living in a kind of a, a state of hyperactive trauma. Sub, uh, at the same time, there's nothing to help us through it except things like celebrity worship, TV sports, these kinds of things. Our heroes are dead. The, the purpose of mythology and storytelling and myth is to heal and help sort of develop and coach a person's ego shall we say, through, through this experience called life. We don't have that today. What we have is these external stimuli through things like entertainments and sports, and they're not addressing the damage, the trauma to the subconscious. What they're doing is they're creating neurochemical reactions, releases of stress hormones and endorphins, dopamine, norepinephrine, adrenaline, and so on in the brain. And what they're doing is, ironically, for all this talk about evolution and everything, the current system of materialism is de is creating devolution in humanity. It's it's, a, it's now a race to the bottom. And the simple reason for this, in my opinion, is because the psychopathic system at the top is trying to build, is well, has built society within their own image, in their own life experience as just a series of neurochemical rewards. And... Because of that, there's a deep trauma within people, and this has led to all the things like self-mutilation through plastic surgery, through alterations of body parts, even down to extreme piercings and tattooing. However, if that's done as a compensatory mechanism to some loss within themselves, that's not a good thing, and I'm seeing that increasingly more and more. about the money, always talk about the honey, baby, oh my brother's here, what's your name, what's your name, take it down to the river, take it with a pinch of salt, whatever the game is good, it's not my fault, devil take my soul if you want it, bring you back to me for just one more night. Take my soul if you want it Bring you back to me For just one more night Well, I made a deal with your mama Made a deal with your mama We can make a deal, baby
nationally since 2007 across a community radio network. We just heard Son of Dave with Devil Take My Soul and before that artist and writer Thomas Sheridan talking to us about his work on psychopathy and the psychopathic society. www.thomassheridanarts.com is his website. His underground classic is Defeated Demons, Freedom from Consciousness Parasites and Psychopathic Society. Many have claimed his words and insights have saved lives, with his books providing a sort of practical field guide for victims. Let's continue with more of the interview with Thomas Sheridan. What does Native wisdom or Indigenous culture tell us about the psychopaths, how to deal with them and how to identify? Oh, a tremendous amount, more than actually science even does. Now, when I'm talking about Indigenous cultures here, I'm very specifically not only mentioning, you know, as Aboriginal cultures in in Australia, Native Americans in America, uh, Inuit, whatever, South American tribes. I'm also talking about indigenous pre-Christian European culture. It's very easy for people to get caught up in the idea that European history began with the Crusades or the Roman Empire. There was a time before the Roman Empire when we had an indigenous European cultures that were rich that were far more humanistic. I mean, the the classic one of that would be the the portrayal of the Vikings by the highly psychopathic Christian uh, Frankish Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, when the Vikings were probably far more peace-loving than any Christian uh, was at the time. They were traveling and trading between Native Americans and the Muslim world, but at at a time when Christians, Christian armies, were slaughtering their way through the Middle East and during Crusades and so on. Remember, the indigenous tribes of Europe were brutally slaughtered by the Christian armies, you know, including the you think of the Saxons and the Holy Verdict at Verdun, where you know thousands of Saxons were murdered on the Charlemagne's orders because they would not convert to Christianity. Right up until the witch burnings in the Middle Ages and through the Reformation. So when I'm talking indigenous terms, I'm talking the indigenous human spirit that exists all over this world at one time. It's very easy to, for Europeans, people of European origin to say, well, we don't have this in our past. By God, we do. It was just Christianized out of us by this, uh, this, this, basically this, this, you know, monotheistic debt cult. From and the and you least. touch on something very interesting because it is almost like with that Christian mindset, people can't see, beyond that in terms of their history like this is amnesia it's it's, it's a tremendous tragedy it's a tremendous tragedy and so because of that it falls into the hands of things like white nationalists and racists 
who, you know, invoke the archetypes of Odin and Thor and all these other kinds of things. And reality is that belongs to all of us, all of us. And you have, you know, people of European background traveling to the Andes or traveling to the Amazon or traveling all over the world to find a culture that they had themselves at home that was destroyed by Christianity. And they, that's, it's just, it was a horrific psyop in many ways. And that to me signifies the, in terms of literary ideas how the psychopathy was imposed upon how the control grid came into 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 being you have the christian empires like the holy roman empire it had control over the literacy it had control over book printing and so on and began its dehumanization of heathen tribes in europe but we're talking and about something so, very well orchestrated as well would you say big time. i mean in time, terms yeah. of of the psychology that they that they seem to understand in that way to actually um, invade to that level and destroy to that level. What, what's your sort of comment on that? Well, there was a methodology of a sort of like re a refinement. It was very mechanistic. You know, what they started on the Saxons that was later improved by Cromwell with the Irish. And the reason and Cromwell and the experimenters in Ireland, particularly, you know, with the start, with the actual elimination of basically the Irish, that was, and also the, the sheeps, the, the replacement of the, in Scotland with the, the Scottish Highland clearances, replacing Scots people with sheep. That was, they were all prototypes and testing grounds. This is how the psychopathic control grid works for what we're see, what we saw later in North America, in the, in Oceania, in, in everywhere, in India, particularly India was an enormous, an enormous, uh, testing ground for the psychopathic control grid through things like the Dutch East India Company and the British Raj. When the British Raj went basically before they existed, they wrote constantly about how India was in a remarkable place, polytheistic, of course, and there was very little poverty, tremendous culture, and they realized the only way they were going to demolish it was through education. And this was the growing, and this is how they did it. They, they sent all the Maharajas, sons to oxford and cambridge and they came back with the the infection i, I, I want to call it of the psychopathic control grid and put it upon india and this has been they've repeated this all the time and it's still going on we have to remember that we're you know we're basically lab rats for a psychopathic now i won't say elite but i should say a kind of a, a flotsam that got to the top of society because using, as you said, social Darwinism, behaviorism and Pavlovian conditioning, they've created a situation where they're guaranteed to get on top. And so the it's true, it's very, very true this, but we also have to be very, very careful in how we use our language. You know, even simple things like, you know, the way they have, you know, they, human beings have to believe they have to go into nature. So they, they detached us from nature. Human beings are nature, for Christ's sake. That's what we are. We're part of nature, but they've been very powerful in making us think we don't have a connection to nature. We are a disease on this planet. We are a virus. We're nothing of the sort. This is a brand new idea that directly came out of this this whole this this this, this social Darwinism you're talking about, and particularly through political systems and political control system mechanisms, uh, the Prussian education system and so on, turning people into little robots that was emulated all over the world through the United States, through Dewey, the New School, the Frankfurt School and so on. This is very dark and deep stuff that people need to be aware of. It's amazing to me. It's absolutely amazing to me that even with all this, we still have poets and artists and philosophers and dreamers. It just goes to show you 
the stunning power of the Europe of the human resolve of our of our, our deep archetypal uh, influences and understandings, whether they be Indigenous European, Aboriginal, North American, whatever, it doesn't matter. We are a phenomenal species, and the psychopathic control grid has been to create this idea of self-loathing, self-doubt, insecurity within us, big time, big time. So we don't actually realize just how amazing we are and the you know the way that's always coming out is in is in culture it comes out in literature it comes out in poetry and movies and songs it comes out that way but that's the only way they allow us to do it they've also made us believe that culture and those are two different things you go to experience culture no you are culture yeah, that's interesting divide i mean if, even if we trace that back to the rise of the romantic um, movement we can see that that was a reaction against this sort of dehumanization and this disconnection from nature. But for them, it was like they were discovering something quite new from something which obviously had been quite lost, that you yep. could find divinity, that you could find that that connection through nature rather than through this sort of, you know, over-the-top religion or, or what have you. And the romantic, the, the romantic image, you know, movement. Very interesting that it happened in, with the sign of Gothic literature. So on one hand, you have the likes of Samuel Palmer and the ancients wandering around in a kind of a shamanic haze under the moonlight in the Kent countryside. You had William Blake. At the same time, you had people like Sheridan Lafanu. Bram Stoker later, but you had like Mary Shelley uh, writing the, the, these gothic horror novels, and then you had the the, the Brontes, with, and it was all taken place. There was a real sort of like psychoanalysis of the human condition in a kind of a, an English-speaking Northern European context taking place within that Romanticism movement, where you had sort of like the Romantics with the Druids. And the kind of the the, the you know the, the the druids of nature, and then you had the druids of darkness, who would have been on the gothic sides of things. But both were equally important. I would say that was the last time, probably in Europe. I can't think of too many others times since where you had a true kind of soulful engagement with the condition of mankind and womankind at that period. That's very very vital, and the fact that these stories still deeply resonate today shows you just how powerful they were. I don't think there's been anything like that since, not in a European context anyway. But but that idea, that sort of idealism or that sort of brotherhood of man, which really a lot of people are quite open to and sort of would naturally, in the right environments, just naturally be like that. You know, we have empathy. We, we see all these things happening and the majority of people would be quite happy to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. But we have this sort of blind sight to the fact that there is this other that exists and um how is it dealt with this is uh this is the question this is the this is the meditate this is the meditation on good and evil that i've been spent so much time trying to wrap my head around am i any closer to an answer no i'm not but i know the road to go on and the road to go on is creativity it, the road to go on is non-engagement as much as possible with the pathological system and pathological individuals, even if they're just damaged people who don't necessarily are harming you in some way, toxic individuals, energy vampires, in some way they're not meaning to. You have to detach because there it, it really comes down to some kind of energy wars. 
It really is like that. Uh, that's, I mean, I started that. Let me tell you something, uh, really. When I first started out doing this, I was very close to being an atheist. Not completely, but close enough. I've always been interested in, you know, the esoteric aspects of world, the supernatural, and all these other things, always under the assumption that there would be a, a solution for this. And there was, this, probably there was a spiritual aspect of people. I wasn't religious. I came from a country that was ripped in two by Christianity, by different cults of Christianity, and I want nothing to do with it. However, I would have to say that since I wrote Puzzling People and Defeat the Demons, I've actually now come to, and this, and this may sound crazy to a lot of people listening to this, but I actually do believe that there is a war between the forces of good on a spiritual level and what they call the forces of bad on the negative level. And there's an actual real spiritual depth to it. This, of course, the first part of that that happened was that I met an African shaman at, a, at an event in Dublin, a Militech shaman, back a while back, a long time ago. And he said to me, "What are you interested in?" And I said, "I'm interested in psychopaths." And he goes, "Oh, I know, I know all about them." And he goes, "You know what that is? That's a demon world trying to invade this world, and you people in the West refuse to exist. These things exist." are for real until you wake up one morning and the demon is staring you in the face and that like left me stunned because then that really because I started to then have very different emotional experiences with it it wasn't that I I knew I knew I, I I witnessed evil anymore after that and after I started to see it on a spiritual level but I actually started to feel it and I could actually feel evil like it was it was a sense. It was a sense. An all-invasing, toxic virus. What writers like Paul Levy have written books called Understanding with Tico. The idea of a, of a virus, of a consciousness parasite. And that has become very real to me. You better You better run. 
My brother, you could probably win in a shit-talking competition My composition's the opposition of all the shit that Got niggas wishing to spit tragic The shit that get you deal cracking You spend cash on cement asses My heart burns in the fire of truth Got the heat of seven suns and immediate treatment needed More niggas burn on war started 1792 Won't act like I'm any better You or me, I am you We all hate, we all love As below, so above We got poison everywhere So what's a war on a drug? We at war with ourselves Type of war with no guns So if you had to meet yourself Would you go do it or run? Cause I could be MLK I could be Juicy J Or a lame on Instagram that shows the world is AK 47's the way You can follow us straight At the end of the day At the end of the day You better run in some type of direction Cause the people going nowhere Are the ones that are flexing I'm not trying to be a preacher I was never a reverend But I can take your ass to church And show you glimpses of heaven You better run in some type of direction Cause the people going nowhere Are the ones that are flexing I'm not trying to be a preacher I was never a reverend But I can take your ass to church And show you glimpses of heaven You better That was Rory with Devil's Whisper. This is a bohemian beat, and today we are featuring an interview with Thomas Sheridan, Irish writer and artist, whose books on evil and psychopathy have become underground successes, talking about the things most of us are afraid to broach, but affects all of us. In this last part of the interview, I ask Sheridan about George Orwell's classic novel, 1984, and how that relates to the psychopathic society. The whole Orwellian book, the whole 1984 book is, if you wanted, if you wanted a, uh, you know, a primer on how the a psychopathic pathological system operates, it's all in there. Orwell hid nothing. Doublespeak is really cognitive dissonance, the idea of having two separate ideas in your head at the same time in order to maintain your sanity because to actually put your emotions, uh, your full conscious uh, awareness into either one of those ideas or to try and rationalize the dichotomy between those two ideas would probably send you into psychosis. I find that difficult to understand. Like, I mean, if you've got two opposing ideas, I mean, I understand the process and cognitive dissonance, but... The idea that people can be so easily confused when it just takes a matter of just thinking about it. You know, yes, it's but almost that's, like there's no I, thinking happening. Yeah, well, that's what you look at, like, say, religious wars, right? Thou shall not kill. Here's a sword. Go to the Middle East and kill all the Muslims or kill all the Jews. Okay, so that's a direct, that's, that, that's a direct double, double think, cognitive distances in their head. And it However, hasn't changed. <laughs> no, and it still creates the same psychosis where people are depending on leadership structures to help them deal with it. Uh, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I can't, I can't stop thinking about it. The news, the news reports, the newspapers will literally contradict themselves from day to day in their headlines or even contradict themselves at the start of the, he- the, the main headline, the top of the page and then the body text completely contradicts what the headline said in the top page. Eventually, you just you on a subconscious level, your cognition says, "I give up. Tell me what to believe." It's like and they notice the normalization of contradiction, isn't it? It's yeah. like that real process. So, if we are to look at, for instance, you know, we know that um, psychopaths are, are liars and, and deceivers, but it seems that we have lost connection with the word deviousness. Would you like to reacquaint us with the word? Deviousness has lost its power ever since probably like Machiavelli's The Prince. <laughs> the idea that deviousness should be that one par- you cannot trust the person. They'll tell you one thing and do another. 
but in the game in terms of strategy and statesmanship and war and politics it's then seen as an attribute we have statesmanship which is deviousness which is gaslighting you know the changing people's perception of reality which is playing games with the enemy that's all very well and good in the art of war but when that was transferred into business and then into society as a whole you'd have people saying like as an expression we use here in Ireland, oh, he's a cute whore meaning you know he'd like you know it, it he would t- he would if it was daytime he'd, he'd have you believing it was white just by his his ability to word spell you, and all this idea he's a jack the lad, oh he's a cunning guy, oh he's you know you know he he could he could talk the eyeball out of your head, this kind of thing. Now this is when it becomes very bad because then that becomes this normal not only a normalization of deviousness, but also a celebration celebration of deviousness as if uh, hey it's just business, nothing personal, you know. And this is this is very bad because. It'd be one thing if people were, if society was honest about this. If you went to school and they educated you in school, saying you will have to deal with devious people when you grow up. But unless you went to a private public school or some big posh, you know, paid school, what basically you get is the world works like this. It runs to a formula, and you go out there and do it until you realize you get out there, and it's a free for all of savages operating in what you said, social Darwinism. I'd like to talk a little bit more about um, the disconnect from fairy tales and folklore. Well, let's start with fairies. Our ancestors lived in terror of fairies. They, they, went, they, they, they literally lived in terror of fairies. There were demons to them, and they did anything to avoid them. And the way they, they described the fairies in, in Irish and Scottish and all kinds of European folklore was that the fairies were a non-human consciousness that had a deep hatred of human beings manipulated played tricks on them the trickster caused human misery if you if you crossed them the wrong way and for no reason even if it was accidental even if they just felt like doing it for sport and they had a deep a deep uh, jealousy and envy of the human condition disney comes along and you get tinkerbell the happy fairy the nice fairy you get the situations like with like things like little red riding hood which is about every you know pedophilia, Hansel and Gretel. These were to teach children that the idea that you could not trust all human beings. Some human beings were evil, but rather than traumatizing the child and coming out directly and saying there's adults out there who'll do appalling things to you sexually, you would, it was easier to convey these ideas in the form of metaphor. It was easier to convey these ideas in the form that you may be ripped apart by wild animals in the wood one day through the symbolism of Little Red Riding Hood, it may it was much easier to do that than actually come out and say you could be torn to pieces by animals one day. It was much healthier. Again, we don't have that anymore. We've lost that. Even Bram Stoker's Dracula, right up into that's 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 a you know a modern mythology for all intents and purposes. He's warning us about this. Basically, he was Bram Stoker's boss, Henry Irving, the the actor who was a huge manipulator, both him and people, to get what he wanted. And so he was sucking his energy dry. And the metaphor for life energy was the blood that we, the vampire was taking. And so method, again, it just there's lots of it in, in all the folklore. Very interesting when you go into it in the, uh, you have the, you know, you see, we don't have a mythology to teach us about rationalizing 
and working with right and wrong. You say, like, you have something like the, the Bhagavad Gita, okay? You have the discussion between Arjuna and uh, Krishna and the whole idea of him wrestling with his consciousness on the field of battle. But the ultimate metaphor there is you have to get shit done. You can't sit there meditating in this moment. You have to go. And that's why that's why Krishna says, fight Arjuna, fight. What he's talking about is engagement with the materialistic world, even if the impetus is creative and spiritual. An artist still has to pick up a pen and write the poem, has to paint the canvas, has to carve the sculpture. And this is a, this is, applies to human affairs and even things like war. And so we, didn't, we don't even have that anymore. We have very crude kind of metaphors that come through. And Disney was a huge part of that. And children are at a tremendous loss today. It's not that they have, on one hand, they have Bear, Barney saying, I love you, you love me, Teletubbies, which is like really strange kind of like blob children. And then they go straight from that into like action shows where you have like, you know, transformers and monsters and all this kind of killing and it's not teaching them any lessons it's just teaching them we're the good guys and they're bad guys so when a war comes along they can be stuck in uniform sent off to the middle east and kill bad guys very very basic very very a result of this the degradation of our cognition by this inability to have a comparative mythology to coach us through this well this traumatic existence we're currently in
Kit with Wolf. You are listening to the Bohemian Beat and today on the show we have been featuring a recent interview with Irish writer and artist Thomas Sheridan. His website is www.thomasheridanarts.com so check it out. He is also the author of numerous books on the subject of psychopathy including Puzzling People, The Labyrinth of the Psychopath, Defeated Demons, Freedom from Consciousness Parasites and Psychopathic Society and The Anvil of the Psyche. I hope you've enjoyed examining the concept of evil from a literary perspective today on The Bohemian Beat. I will be back next week. Same beat time, same bohemian frequency. And for more information, check out thebohemianbeat.com. We will end with a track by Crash Test Dummies called Your Devil Ways. Thank you for joining me on The Bohemian Beat. I'm ready.
Devil D. 